Let's pray together. Father, we're here to remember and to celebrate the wonder of all wonders that you looked on a world filled not with obedient children or even reluctant servants, but rebels who spat in your face and wanted nothing to do with you. We wanted actually to take your place, to remove you from your throne and sit on your throne ourselves. And you look upon a world of those rebels and you out of your infinite love and grace because you're merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Send your son. Send your chief treasure, the object of your affections, the one you've been pouring out your love on for all eternity, your Son to us, to become like us, to walk among us, and to redeem us. And so as we finish our series today and tonight, I pray that you would send your spirit to work in our hearts, to open our eyes once again to the glories of your Son, that we might be changed forever, that we might be made to look more like him, whether it's Christmas, and this is one of the two times we come to church, or whether we come to church every Sunday, that we would behold the wonders of your Son and be forever changed, and that we would respond as we see the shepherds do today, and as we see so many in the scriptures do today, we respond as we ought to, to such great wonders, to such great news that for us a Savior has been born, who is Christ the Lord. Be with me as I preach this incredible reality. I pray that your spirit would move in our hearts, Lord. We love you and pray in your son's wonderful name. Amen. Well, Merry Christmas, Parkway. Uh, Merry Christmas Eve, almost Christmas. We've been walking through a Christmas series for the past four weeks where we've stopped as a church, stopped from preaching Matthew, which we've been in for quite some time, to observe Advent, to observe the reality of what I just pray that our Savior came 2,000 years ago and was born, though he's the infinite king of the universe, the king of glory, he lays down his heavenly throne and comes to earth and is born in a manger. And we've been slowly, as a church, looking really at the scope of all history. We started back in the garden. We started in Genesis 1. We started with, let there be light. In the beginning, there was God and no one and nothing else. But God said, let there be light. And out of his sheer grace, he created us to walk with him in the garden in the cool of the day, made a garden where there was only flourishing. There was eternal spring. And he put man and woman in that garden to work it and keep it in communion with him. But we didn't get far in the story before we saw the tragedy of Genesis 3 where we do rebel, where we do look upon the one rule that the Lord has given us and we doubt his character. We doubt that what he has said is actually best for us and we begin to think, I think what I think is good and evil ought to be how I live this life and we take the fruit and eat of it and we're exiled. And since Genesis 3, that's been the reality that you and I have known our whole lives, this land of thorns This land where we are not naked and ashamed, but rather we are constantly wrestling with shame, constantly trying to cover ourselves with fig leaves and hide from one another. This world of broken relationships where we exploit one another to get ahead. That's our exile reality. But our God doesn't leave us us there. We looked next at how there's continual promises of hope that we look and long for a Savior to one day remove us from this 
exile, and every bit of hope that we got was continually frustrated. All throughout the Old Testament, we see partial relief, but this continued looking and longing, we need a savior to come once and for all and defeat the ultimate enemy, not just Pharaoh in Egypt, but the serpent in the garden. We don't just need a do-over, we need a new heart. We need someone who's going to come do the seemingly impossible, the thing that Moses couldn't do, the thing that David failed to do, that every hero in the Old Testament fails to do. We need someone to come and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And last week we saw his arrival. We looked at Emmanuel, God with us, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. And we will finish this Advent series today, both this morning and then again tonight, Lee will preach on the second way we respond to our Savior. But that's what we're going to look at. As we've seen our exile, these promises of hope, and then the arrival of our Savior, how do we respond to such glories? How do we respond to such good news of great joy? How do we respond to the gospel? We'll look at that today. The, the, the reality that light has invaded our darkness, that life has invaded our death, what do we say? What do we do in response? We'll see three things, three types of responses that we'll see in Luke 2. Number one, we respond in joyful praise, joyous worship, Number two, we respond in expectant hope, expectant hope, and then lastly, we respond with eager sharing, eager sharing, joyous praise, expectant hope, and eager sharing. So let's look at the passage we'll be in. We were in John 1 last week. Now we finally got to Linus on the stage, Luke 2, the very famous Christmas Passage, verse 8. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. This is right after Jesus' birth. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, appeared to the shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with an angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he has pleased. Again, this is, I would imagine this is probably the most famous Christmas passage. We, we get to, okay, no room at the end. The baby's finally had in there. We pan to an open field where shepherds at night are watching their fields, minding their own business. And all of a sudden, the heavens break forth. And the angel of the Lord shines bright. The night, the night sky beams with great light. And they react in the same way everybody reacts in the scriptures when an angel shows up. They are pinned to the ground in great fear. But the angel says, do not fear. I am here to take away all your fear and give you good news of great joy. And so immediately in this story, we see response number one. What is the first way we are meant to respond to the news that Emmanuel has come joyous praise? 
Look at the very nature of the news. What does the age-old describe? I've got good news, but what does this news create in our hearts? What's the very nature of this news? It is news of great joy. It is by its very nature. It's a news that will cause joy to explode in your soul if you're listening, if you're paying attention, the very nature of the news. And then the second thing we see, look at verse 13, as this good news of great joy is exiting the angel's mouth, what happens? Verse 13, suddenly there was with the angels a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those whom he has pleased. As the angel is announcing this good news to these unsuspecting shepherds, the words are hardly out of the angel's mouth when heaven cannot contain itself. And it bursts forth in what? Praise. Joyous praise at the announcement of the news of news. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill for all whom he is pleased. The very nature of this news is as it hits your ears, it pours joy into your soul that bubbles up praise into your mouth. And we see it with the shepherds later, but even as the angels themselves are announcing it, we see it with them first. Glory to God in the highest, they say, and we are meant to join them in that praise. We sing joyful, we sang it this morning, joyful all ye nations rise and do what? Join the triumph of the skies. With the angelic hosts proclaim our Christ is born in Bethlehem. This news by its very nature elicits the response of joyous praise. We see it with the angels, we see it with the shepherds in verse 20, they go praising God and glorifying God. That is our first response, joyous praise. And you know, I know, that is just the proper response to things that we enjoy. If you go to a sports game and your team scores a touchdown or scores a goal or hits a home run or whatever, scores you a point, what happens to the crowd if it's a home game? They erupt. Now, let me ask you a question. If you've, ever, if you've ever been to a live sports game, pre-touchdown, when they're on like the one-yard line, did the crowd get together and say, okay, just so you all know how this goes, when they cross that line, we yell really loud. That's just what we're supposed to do. Was, it, was there a, like a plan of, here, here's how we lay out praise? No. You see it, your heart explodes, and you scream. And if you don't like sports, if you like the symphony, what do you do after you just hear a wonderful song, or just amazing playing of instruments. You can tell which one I, I like as I'm horribly describing the symphony. Or you watch The X Factor, right? The person walks up, you're like, they're definitely going to get, you know, Simon's going to be really mean to them. And then they're, they're an incredible singer. What happens? You just cry, or the crowd stands up and just puts their hands together. And again, did they plan it before? Hey, if this person gets a thumbs up and they're going to Hollywood, I know I'm mixing song metaphors. If they're going to Hollywood, let's all clap for them because that's just a nice thing to do. Or is it just natural? Or when you eat good food, you just sit back and say, mmm. When joy hits your heart, you are wired to praise the praiseworthy. And here we see not a good meal, not a good sports team, not a good symphony. 
we see the news of all news. The news that all of history has been waiting for and the angels are just giving us the cue. Here's how you ought to respond. Burst forth in joyous praise. For you, this day, your Savior has come. The King you've been waiting for, Christ the Lord. So we know this to be true. We've been singing it. You've been paying attention to just the content of our songs, all of our songs. Oh, tidings of what? Comfort and joy. Right? Joyful all ye nations rise. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel has come to thee, O Israel. Joy to the world. Right? It's saturating all of the songs that we've been singing over the past month. That is our first response. And I guess the question I would ask is, why? Why is joy the response. Why is this news so joy-causing? Well, let's look at the content in verse 11. What does the angel actually say? What's the content of this good news? Is it just that he slaps a good descriptor on it? It's good news. Be happy. What's the actual content of the news? Why should we respond in joyful praise? Look at verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Someone is born in the city of David, the city of the great king. Maybe the promise of all promises in the Old Testament is one day someone will come from David's line and will be born in David's city in Bethlehem, Micah 5, who will be the king of kings and he will never fall away. And he will perfectly reign in justice and administer peace everywhere, and his kingdom will have no end. Something you heard Lee say, a lesson from Lion King. When you see Mufasa reigning, what do you see? You see the beautiful, lush, green fields, right? The antelope don't mind being eaten. Why? Because eventually the lions will die, and they'll go into the grass, and the antelope eat, right? It's just beauty everywhere. And then what happens? Another king takes over. Scar. And what happens to everything under Scar's reign? Death. There's no food. They need to move on until what happens? A new king comes and life begins to sprout again. That's the hope of the Davidic king. And the angels are saying, he's born today in the city of David, the king of kings that we've been waiting for. But that's not all. He's also the savior. He's the deliverer. In exile, you feel the cold chains of sin and captivity on your wrists every day. You can't break free. No hero can break you free. The one who's finally going to break your chains is here. The Savior you've been crying out for is here. But that's not all. The Christ is here. The anointed one, the Messiah, the one that all of the Old Testament hopes and promises have been pointing to, he's here who is the Lord, who's the ruler. The irony of Genesis 3 is Adam and Eve think, what's going to make me happy is me ruling, me determining what is good and what is evil, not God, and what has resulted from that foolish thought that everyone in this room, including me, believes every day. I know what's best for my life. I know what I ought to do. What's, what's resulted? Absolute carnage. And finally, the ruler is going to say, let me handle it from here. 
who does rule perfectly every second of every day is finally here. In other words, why should we have this response of joyous praise? The Genesis 3.15 promised serpent crusher has come. And he is going to undo all of our exile. He's going to reverse the curse. We sang it this morning. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Everywhere you see the rebellious Genesis 3 curse creep through our existence, his redemption will creep even further. Far as the curse is found, we will find his redemption even further. We talked about in exile three weeks ago. There's three types of exile we see. We see an external exile, our broken world, right? the hostility in our world. There's an internal exile, the shame and hiding that we feel, and there's an eternal exile. Worst of all, we're sent away from the God that we were made for. And now, in our external exile, we have external redemption. In the midst of our worst pain, we now have, 2 Corinthians 1, the God of all comforts, who comforts us in every affliction. There's no pain that he doesn't meet us in. We hear his words in Matthew 5, count it all joy when you're persecuted and you endure trials. Why? Because Great is your reward in heaven. In our broken relationships, in this external exile, we see what's the first thing? How do Adam and Eve respond right after they sin? God comes to them, Adam, what happened? That woman you gave me, she made me do it. Right? The blame game begins, and it gets worse in Genesis 4. You have brothers, and do they get along? No. Cain kills Abel. Broken relationships reign throughout our exile, and here, now that Emmanuel has come, Again, we sang it, truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Change shall he break, for the slave is our brother. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. What do we see him do as he's calling his disciples? Does he make sure he gets a good, solid group that, you know, they're, they're, they're like-minded, right? They'll mesh really well because... I'm going to change the world. I need to make sure my followers are real solid so that when people look at them, it reflects well of me. Is that how Jesus thinks, or does he get perhaps the worst possible group, you would think, to stick them together? He gets a tax collector and a zealot, puts them in his inner circle. No two people that would have hated each other more. He gets people that are notorious sinners and eats with them, spends time with the ones that are rejected. The world looking on is constantly saying, who are his people? as he breaks down the dividing wall of hostility, as all the hatred that has resulted from us eating the fruit, he slowly begins to heal as he tells us things like, you've heard it said, hate your enemies. I say, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. He's undoing all the broken relationships and all the hatred born from us ruling. He's fixing, he's redeeming our external exile. We talked about, again, in our external exile, probably the most hopeless part of it is how unfixable it is. All the humanitarian work of all of history, what's the result? We still have thorns. And finally, the one who can make the fruit of the Spirit grow in the human heart is here. The one who can actually heal and redeem. So he redeems our external exile. He begins that work. That's not, uh, that's not 
all, far as the curse is found, he goes to our internal exile and brings internal redemption. That shame that you feel, that hiding that we see flood into Adam and Eve's heart as they open their eyes and they flee from one another and they flee from the Lord and they put fig leaves over themselves to cover their nakedness, he addresses. Frederick Buechner, who's a 20th century author, was a pastor and theologian, kind of a C.S. Lewis type, wrote in his book, Telling Secrets, one of the greatest hungers of the human heart is to be known We so badly want to be seen for who we are. But the problem for us is that is also simultaneously our greatest fear. What if they see who I really am and they reject me? What if they see these fig leaves and they reject me? And so as a result of it being our greatest fear, we're constantly presenting a fake self Right? The most classic example for our day would just be Instagram. Right? We have filters. We have 9,000 attempts at a selfie to get the right angle because people are going to look at this. Right? Even quiet time selfies, totally ignoring Jesus, saying, go into the prayer closet and shut the door. Right? Look at my quiet time with my steaming cup of coffee. We're constantly presenting. How am I doing in this conversation? I wonder what that person thought of me. I'm new here. I wonder if they're liking me. Am I being funny enough? Am I being stern enough? Am I being for the right things? What is this group passionate about? Do I need to feign interest in this thing? How do I fit in? Constantly consumes our thoughts. And even a level deeper than that is, I must fit in or else. And they can never know who I really am. That is your exhausting exile life. And here Emmanuel shows up and says, I've seen you from before the foundation of the world. I watched my father knit you together in your mother's womb. I'm the only one you have no secrets with. I'm the only one, try as you like to hide. There is no hiding with me. Where should I run from your presence? Oh God, there's nowhere I can go. And how does he respond as he sees you, as he sees the depths of you far greater than you do, by the way? How does he respond? How does the father respond? In disgust and rejection or by sending his son so that he might take off all that shame and clothe you in his righteousness, take away those fig leaves, those pathetic things you do to present this ridiculous false self to others and clothe you in his wonderful righteous robes so that you wouldn't just be a forgiven sinner but a celebrated son and daughter. So that you might have the acceptance from the only one in the universe whose opinion actually matters. You can be known fully and know that you're fully accepted and fully loved. And in fact, it makes a peculiar form of worship, the deeper you see your own vileness, the higher you will see his grace and love because he's seen the depths and he loves you and he came for you. He's here to heal that shame. And look at me, to just stop that game that we play, to stop the exhaustion of performing, to try and look a certain way, to try and look like somebody else that might be accepted and loved, you're accepted and loved in the gospel. Emmanuel has come to let you know I didn't see that cardboard cutout of you that you hold up and was like, oh, I guess they're pretty good. I'll come and save them. No, I saw the depths. 
and I came to take away those ridiculous fig leaves. He heals our internal exile, but that's not all. Greatest of all, most wonderfully, he heals our eternal exile. He makes our eternal exile not eternal as he brings eternal redemption. God and sinners are reconciled. That's a cause for joyous praise. We're sent out of the garden. Yes, we lost the luscious fruit. Yes, we lost the, you know, I don't know, being friends with lions without being worried about eating. All the wonderful things we think about the Garden of Eden. Worst of all, we lost the God that we were made for. The fountain of all beauty. The source of all joy. The one that we were made to walk with in the cool of the day and have fellowship with every morning and every night constantly. We're sent away from, and he puts a garden cherub with a flaming sword going every which way to bar our way back to the tree of life. We can never get back in. We're sent east. We can never get back to God. So what does God do? God comes to us. Emmanuel comes down to heal our homelessness. There's a very real sense that wherever Jesus goes, the garden goes. What's so great about our garden home again isn't the lush fruit, it's that our God is there. Home is not where the heart is. Home is where our God is. And our God has come to Bethlehem, taken on flesh, and dwelt among us. Far as the curse is found, he goes and he heals. John, the Apostle John, in his letter of 1 John, he's, he's very eager to write. He lays out, you know, again, we talk about in, in, in the Gospel of John. John just makes his intentions very clear. I'm telling you about the God who came down. Right? That's how he begins his gospel. Same thing, similar in 1 John. He makes his purpose really, really clear. 1 John 1, 4, he says this. We are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. Right? I'm writing what I'm about to say to you because I want my joy completed. What is that thing that he's writing? What is that message that he very eagerly wants to share? Well, let's look back at three verses. 1 John 1, 1. That which is from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard and proclaimed to you also, so that you, may, you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. The reversal of Genesis 3. No longer have we been sent away from our God and barred from His presence. What does John proclaim so that His joy might be complete? Our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son because the Son has come. The life that was made manifest, we have seen it, we've tasted it, we want you to know so that you can have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the God that we were made for. We're back to walking with him in the cool of the day. We can go to him because the veil has been torn, and there's a way back home. He has come to heal our eternal exile that we might have sweet communion and fellowship with him. That's the content of the news. That is why our first response must be joyous praise. There's no greater news in the universe 
All of your ailments and all of your pain are being healed. And the one you were made to gaze at in love forever has come so that you can gaze at and love him again with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So that's our first response, joyous praise. And then the last thing I want us to see before we move to the next point, notice this is not a contract. This is not a proposition the angels are showing up and saying with the shepherds. They're not saying, hey, okay, God's doing something. Now, if you do some other stuff, I got some great news for you. You can earn this freedom. You know, this, you've been crying out for all eternity to break these chains. I've got a good proposition for you. It might, it might happen. Is that what the angels say? No, this is news. This is something happening apart from you, all by grace, having nothing to do with your earning it. We willingly went into exile. We willingly tightened our chains every day in our hard-hearted rebellion. And now this news has come. These wondrous things in the coming of Emmanuel is all by his grace. News for you, not a contract for you, not a proposition for you. News of great joy. Nothing you can do to earn it. And perhaps, most wonderful for some of you that wrestle with assurance of faith, there's nothing you can do to lose it. Paul goes to great lengths to let you know when Emmanuel comes and pours out his love on you by his grace, there's nothing you can do to separate yourself from that love. The end of Romans 8, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, he's, he's listing everything he can possibly think of. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor heights nor depths, nor anything else in all creation. There's a summary statement. In case I forgot anything, let me just say everything else will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's the news. You can't earn it, and therefore you can't lose it. Your external, internal, and eternal redemption has come with Emmanuel all by his grace. How else could we respond but following the angel's lead in joyful praise? He has come to break our chains and bring us home. Now, you might be thinking, okay, I'm with you thus far. I'm happy, right? It's Christmas. Of course I'm happy. But I see brokenness every day. Bethlehem was 2,000 years ago, right? These shepherds, two millennia ago. I see pain every day. I feel pain every day. I see the thorns of exile every single day. What do you mean he's come to undo our exile if our exile is not undone? And here's where we get to our second very important response, and as we look at it, this, this expectant hope, our second response, we really get to the tension of the Christian life because your life and my life as Christians is a life between two advents. His first advent on Christmas Day and his second advent that we're still looking and longing for when he comes again once and for all, puts away all of his enemies, in, uh, issues in his glorious kingdom. We live in between two advents, and as we do, we have expectant Hope. We talked about before Christmas, for the majority or all of the Old Testament, hope was frustrated. We're looking for saviors. Is it Moses? No. Is it Joshua? No. Is it any of the judges? Certainly no. Is it David? Uh, no. A little bit better than Saul. 
but affair and murder of your best friend kind of goes south, right? Is it any of the kings that come after him, Hezekiah? Uh, no, they're all failing. Hope is frustrated, but after his first advent, when our king of kings comes, what does he say? The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom has come 2,000 years ago, but we live, as it's often called, in this time of now and not yet. Life between two exiles. He's come, and he's coming again. The kingdom has come. It's been inaugurated, and one day it will be consummated. One day all the enemies won't just get a death blow to their head as Satan got on the cross, but will be thrown into the lake of fire. And so we live in this tension in between Christmas and in between Revelation 22, where we just have this interesting declared righteous, yet you're being transformed in the image of Christ. Paul will say things like, if anyone is in Christ, he is, present tense, a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. But it'll also say in Colossians 3, put off the old self and put on the new self. You've been declared righteous. There's nothing to earn your salvation. And the Lord is also transforming you at the very same time. We live in the world in this strange time where we're still exiles. We're elect exiles, as Peter calls us. There's thorns and thistles all around us, right? By the sweat of our brow, we still eat bread. There's still pain in childbirth, right? I can attest from witnessing several, right? Still here, but what does Paul say? Your citizenship, is it in this exile world? What does Paul say in Philippians 3? But our citizenship is where? In heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So we live in this weird in-between, this now and not yet time, this life between two advents, and here's how. We're meant to navigate this strange in-between time. We look backwards at the first advent, as we've been doing this whole month, with great joy. And now as we look forward to the second advent, we no longer have frustrated hope, as they did. We no longer say, but when will the real thing show up? We now have confident, expectant hope. In all the pain that I see in this world, my Savior has come, and he is coming again. He's sitting on the throne. I can cry out, how long, O Lord? But I expect, I have great confidence that answer will come. And in all the pain I feel now, I still have his sweet words ringing through my ears. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you always to the end of the age. And I know one day he will wipe away every single tear. He will make everything sad, untrue one day. Though I still wrestle with this flesh, right? I still behave listening to the serpent often. I'm still putting off the old self and putting on the new self. I know one day I will be like him. John again says in John 3, look at this tension of this now and not yet. Beloved, we are God's children now. There's the now and here's the not yet. But what we will be has not yet appeared But we know that when he appears, there's the second advent, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. There will come a day where you will never sin again and you will never wrestle with doubt again 
And you will never question the Father's love for you again. And you will fully love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. You will never pursue a false pleasure again. Why? Because your faith will be turned to sight. Christmas tells us that day is coming. I look back at Advent 1 and have expectant hope of Advent 2. You see that? That's our second reaction to his advent. It's a responsive, it's a reactive response, but we know my Savior has come, and I expect, I have confidence, he is coming again. Okay, so we have two responses thus far. We have a reason for joyful praise, joyful worship, the reason, I should say. We have expectant hope. No matter the trials and tribulations in this life, I can look back have my heart filled with joy and great expectant hope as I look forward one day this will end and he will make all things new. And there's one more, one more thing, one more response that we must have to the coming of Emmanuel. And in fact, if we don't have this final response, it might be a sign that we haven't really understood this good news of great joy. This final response of Emmanuel coming is an eager sharing, an eager telling that Jesus Christ is born. So we've looked at the angels already. The angels are sharing, right? They're bursting forth in the heavens to declare his wonderful glory, telling the shepherds who don't know of his birth, hey, in Bethlehem, the Savior of the world has been born. We've seen the angels already. Let's look at the shepherds. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, like a logical conclusion, let us go over to Bethlehem and see the thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning the child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. What's the instinct? We've seen, we've got this wonderful news from the angels as their hearts are filled with this good news of great joy, they share it. We see it in the angels. We see it in the shepherds. We see it with, I don't know, every single person that Jesus encounters in the Gospels. He will heal somebody. And what does he typically say? Hey, let's keep this between us, okay? Don't tell anybody this wonderful miracle. You're blind, now you see. Don't tell anybody. And they say, typically, almost all of them say, cool, got it. And then they go tell every single human being they can find, right? Constantly disobeying Jesus. First response to being made able to walk when you were lame is disobey Jesus, right? Go tell everybody. What's the woman at the well's response as Jesus calls out, you're right when you say you don't have a husband. You've got five, and the one you're living with now isn't your husband, right? And he says, come to me. I'm the living water. You'll never go thirsty again. And she encounters Jesus, and she encounters his grace. What does she do? What's her response? as she was hiding out in the well by herself, going out in the really hot period of the day so that she doesn't have to encounter anybody. What does she do next? She flees into the town, and anyone with ears, she says, come and meet the man who told me everything I've ever done. Over and over and over and over again, we see in the Gospels, the response to encountering Emmanuel is an eager, passionate sharing of him telling of him, a longing to declare his beauty to others, to proclaim his wonder to others. And it's very similar in the same way that we talked about 
good news hits your ears, joy hits your heart, and prayer, or praise bubbles up into your mouth. Similarly, when joy and beauty hit your heart, proclamation also bubbles up into your mouth. We've talked about this before if you've been to Parkway for any length of time. Joy is, by its very nature, evangelistic. You love sharing the things you enjoy. You don't care if you're honest. If people think your kid is cute, you will show them pictures. Why? Because to you, in your eyes, you have the most beautiful children that have ever been made. Your sports team is great. You don't care if everybody else doesn't like them, right? You tell them how much better they are than the cowboys or whatever, right? You must. It almost feels like an impulse that must be obeyed. C.S. Lewis probes this a little bit in his reflection on the Psalms, talks about we, 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 we love sharing what we enjoy because the actual sharing of it is like a completion of the enjoyment. Here's what he says. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. Remember what John said in 1 John. Why am I writing this letter to you? So that my joy may be complete. I have to tell you about the life that has been made manifest to you. I have to tell you that our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. C.S. Lewis is honing in on this. He says this, It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is, to come suddenly at a turn of a road upon some mountain valley of unsuspected grandeur and then have to keep silent because the person with you care for it no more than a tin can in a ditch, to hear a good joke and have no one to share it with. When you delight in something, when you enjoy something, it's almost, you must share. Why? Because the sharing completes the enjoyment. It's its appointed consummation. And so with Emmanuel coming, the delight of all delights, the good news of great joy, sharing him, there's almost a godly selfishness to it. I'm doing this so my joy is complete. But it's not just for you. You share him because the whole world is in this exile and their Savior has come and they don't know it. And you do. If you have any love for humanity, do humanitarian work, fine. This is the humanitarian work, the one who is here to break their chains has come. Joyful, eager sharing, I know the way to heal that unhealable cancer within you. Emmanuel has come. And then lastly, what we see again with the angels, the last reason we have this eager sharing as a response is because the God of the universe, Jesus, the King of heaven, who is already, just by his very being, worthy of every praise, of every breath that you have, giving him great praise, has done the unthinkable and coming down and being born in a feeding trough to save rebels who deserve nothing but eternal wrath from his Father. We share him eagerly because he is worthy for such unthinkable grace and love. Share him selfishly, Share him for others and share him for his own glory. But he must be 
share. That's the third response we see, this eager sharing. In the same way that Adam and Eve hear the creation mandate, work and keep the garden, right? Be fruitful, multiply. We hear a second mandate, go and tell. Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it, Jesus Christ is born. Joyous praise, expectant hope, and an eager sharing. That is how we respond to the wonderful news that our Savior has come. And so perhaps the final question we need to ask ourselves as we really, I shouldn't say close out the series because Lee will do that officially tonight, but as we're, as we're ending our Advent series, as we've been walking this past month, is this story a fun Christmas story that goes along with a happy holiday where we have bright lights and good food and presents, right? Is it... Is the baby in the manger about as real to you as a Marvel superhero character, or is this the most precious reality to you? Is the news that the angels are telling the shepherds, for you this day is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord, the sweetest news that you have drunk in and live by? Or is it just a nice story? There is a radical, perhaps eternal difference between believing the fact that God is loving and living as one who has received his love. Living as one who knows my Savior has come for me, this news has come. And so the question we ought to ask ourselves is, which are we? Do we live in the reality of his advent our Savior has come. Or is it a nice story, right? We celebrate it on Christmas, and he's the reason for the season. We don't like Santa anyway, right? He's a nice battle for us to get into. Which are we? And let me just tell you, the easiest way you can tell is ask yourself, do I have these responses to his coming? Would joy in my Savior and praise of his wonderful name be characterized as my life? If someone were to hang out with you for a month, would they say, man, that guy lives in the joy of the Lord? Wow, she longs to praise her Savior who has done the unthinkable in the gospel. Do you respond in joyful praise? When you encounter thorns and thistles in this exile, do you have expectant hope or are you just as furious as the rest of the world? When you watch the news, do you cower in fear and think, how is this ever going to be fixed? Or do you say, my Savior has come and he is coming again? He's sitting on the throne. He will one day pull out these thorns and make all things new. Does expectant hope describe how you navigate this life as elect exiles whose citizenship is in heaven? And do you have this longing to eagerly share the wonderful Savior who has come? Or have you not thought about it in a while? Are the people that the Lord has put in your orbit, your family, your neighbors, your coworkers, the people that you just encounter often, do you know, do you think often about, if they don't know the Lord, the chains that Emmanuel's here to break and eagerly share, I have good news of great joy for you, or would that just be weird? You don't want to mess up the relationship and then think you're a weird Christian person, right? Is your life characterized by these responses? You can be honest with yourself. And, and here's the good news for you. If you failed all those tests, 
I really don't have joyful praise. I'm often terrified by the things happening in the world. And I don't remember the last time I told anybody about Jesus or even that I go to church. That doesn't make the reality of the Advent any less true. And the invitation for you is open your ears again. The angels are here saying, there is good news of great joy, brothers and sisters. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. There is an end to your exile in his coming. There is a wonderful fellowship with your Father that you were made for and his Son, Jesus Christ, in his coming. Come to the manger. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that this is true. One of the most wonderful things about it is it's not a story that could be made up. It's just true. Who would make up a story that the king of the universe became the most weak being possible, a baby in a feeding trough rejected by those who should be singing his praises? He's not born in the courts in a golden crib. He's born among forgotten shepherds in the field. Yet the king of the universe has laid down his glory so that he might raise us up. They might open our blind eyes and break our exile chains. That's wonderful news. And Father, we are so often deaf to it. And so I pray that you would open our ears again. You would let us with the shepherds stand in wonder and flee to Bethlehem to see our Savior who has come that we might find light and life in his wonderful name. Pray that in his name. Amen.